Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. I invite you to take your Bible with me this evening and turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. We begin our reading in the 8th verse. 2 Kings 4, beginning in verse 8. And it fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where it was a great woman. She constrained him to eat bread, and so it was that as often as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. She said unto her husband, Behold, now I perceive that this is a holy man of God, which passeth by us continually. Let us make a little chamber, I pray thee, on the wall. Let us set for him there a bed, and table, and stool, and candlestick, and it shall be when he cometh to us that he shall turn in hither. It fell on a day that he came thither, and turned into the chamber, and lay there, and he said to Gehazi his servant, Call this Shunammite. When he called her, she stood before him. And he said unto him, Say now unto her, Behold, thou hast been careful for us with all this care. What is to be done for thee? Wouldest thou be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the host? She answered, I dwell among mine own people. He said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Verily, she hath no child, and her husband is old. And he said, Call her. When he called her, she stood at the door. And he said, About this season, according to the time of life, thou shalt embrace a son. And she said, Nay, my Lord, thou man of God, do not lie unto thy handmaid. And the woman conceived and bare a son at that season that Elisha had said unto her, according to the time of life. When the child was grown, it fell on a day that he went out to his father to the reapers. He said unto his father, My head, my head. He said to the lad, carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door upon him and went out. She called unto her husband and said, send me, I pray thee, one of the young men, one of the asses, that I may run to the man of God and come again. And he said, wherefore wilt thou go to him today? It's neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And she said, it shall be well. Then she saddled an ass, and she said to her servant, Drive and go forward, slack not for thy riding for me, except I bid thee. So she went and came into the man of God to Mount Carmel, and it came to pass, when the man of God saw her afar off, that he said to Gehazi his servant, Behold, yonder is the Shunammite. Run now, I pray thee, to meet her, and say unto her, Is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. When she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught him by the feet, but Gehazi came near to thrust her away. And the man of God said, Let her alone. Her soul is vexed within her. The Lord hath hid it from me and hath not told me. Then she said, Did I desire a son of my Lord? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? And he said to Gehazi, Gird up thy loins. Take my staff in thy hand and go thy way. If thou meet any man, salute him not. Then he salute thee, answer him not again, and lay my staff upon the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. He arose and followed her. Gehazi passed on before them, and laid the staff upon the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Wherefore he went again to meet him, and told him, saying, The child is not awake. And when Elisha was come into the house, behold, the child was dead, and laid upon his bed. He went in, therefore, and shut the door upon them twain, and prayed unto the Lord. 
He went up and lay upon the child and put his mouth upon his mouth and his eyes upon his eyes and his hands upon his hands. He stretched himself upon the child and the flesh of the child waxed warm. Then he returned and walked in the house to and fro and went up and stretched himself upon him. And the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. He called Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she was coming to him, he said, take up thy son. She went in fell at his feet, bowed herself to the ground, and took up her son and went out. By now you know the ministry of Elisha is a ministry that is marked by miracles. You'll recall that his ministry began with the miracle of receiving the mantle as it fell from Elijah, and he took that mantle and struck the Jordan River, and the Jordan River separated, and he went over on dry ground. Having gone over on dry ground, there were those who were from the city of Jericho who met him to talk about the bitterness of, his, of their water. The Bible tells us that Elisha was led of the Spirit of God to salt the water, and the water became sweet. The third miracle is something of a mystery. When the young men teased Elisha about his bald condition, certain bears came out of the woods and attacked the young men who were mocking the prophet of God. Then we discover Elisha being summoned by three kings who found themselves in a desert place without water, knowing that their armies were going to be destroyed And Elisha, by the power of the Spirit of God, tells the kings to dig ditches, and in the morning when they awakened, they found that the ditches were filled with water. So we open our Bibles this evening to 2 Kings chapter 4, we find more miracles. A fifth miracle is accomplished by Elisha as the means for that miracle, as the Spirit of God allows one of the widowed wives of one of the sons of the prophets, who had become very impoverished, whose sons were threatened to be taken into captivity or into slavery because of her impoverishment, that widowed wife was told to find all the vessels that she could, borrow what she could, and the oil was poured into those vessels, and the oil did not run dry until the vessels ran out. She paid her debt, and God blessed her home. Two more miracles are recorded here in 2 Kings chapter 4 involving a woman. This woman that we read of this evening is the great woman of Shunem, She conceives a child, a miracle child, if you will. That child dies, and by God's grace, she sees that child resurrected. Notice with me in 2 Kings chapter 4 and verse 8. It fell on a day that Elisha passed to Shunem, where was a great woman. You may want to circle or underline those two words, great woman. The woman of Shunem lives in a small village. It's a small village on a mountain called Mount Mora. It's about 15 miles from Mount Carmel where Elijah called the fire down from heaven. She's living on a mountain that overlooks the Valley of Jezreel, which is where Armageddon will take place. It's a beautiful, lush valley. She has many things by way of natural advantage in the village in which she lives, but it's not a village known for its wealth. It's rather impoverished village. The Bible tells us that Elisha was a circuit-riding preacher, if you will, that he went from school of the prophet to school of the prophet, and as he passed by, he passed by Shunem many times. Now, the Bible speaks of great men. Eight times, in fact, you'll read of great men in the Bible. David called Josiah, or Joab, rather, a great man. Naaman 
The man who was overseeing the Syrian host was called a great man. Daniel is called a great man, the one who ministered in Babylon. But this is the only time that you'll ever hear of a woman being called great in the Bible. So we want to notice those two words. This is the great woman of Shunem. Sometimes when speaking of greatness, there are those who recoil. And well, we should recoil. The Moravians said, For the desire to be great, dear Lord, deliver us. From the desire to be great, dear Lord, deliver us. It's one thing to desire to be great in the eyes of men, and we ought to pray, dear Lord, deliver me. It's another thing to be called great by God. And the woman of Shunem was called great by God. And I would suggest, as we look at the passage that we read this evening, that a careful examination of this Shunammite's testimony can help us understand what it means to be great in the eyes of the Lord. So let's pay careful attention to the text this evening. Let's pray that our hearts would be open, that we would pray even as we enter into the message tonight, Lord, help me to be one who would be called great in your sight. I want you to notice with me, please, that the great woman of Shunem was great first and foremost because of her service. This great woman of Shunem is presented as a servant. Those that the Lord calls great are always called servants. The woman of Shunem came to be known first for serving others. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 25, whoever will be great among you, let him be your servant. Counterintuitive, but spiritually instructed, we are to be seeking after opportunities to serve rather than after opportunities to rule. Who would be great among you, the Lord said to his disciples and to us, let him be your servant. I want you to notice that her service involved hospitality. In verse 8, she constrained Elisha to come in and eat bread. So it was that as oft as he passed by, he turned in thither to eat bread. The Word of God makes much of the ministry of hospitality. In the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 12 and verse 13, we're told we're to be distributing to the necessity of the saints. We're to be given to hospitality. It doesn't appear that this woman of Shunem's hospitality was lavish or extravagant. In fact, it seems that her hospitality toward the prophet was rather modest. I remember when my wife and I were first married, desiring to be hospitable, we looked at the checkbook and realized this could really be an effort. As a youth pastor, having teens over, calculating the cost of what it would take to entertain, often we'd have them over for hot dogs and popcorn. One evening while sitting with a group of teens eating hot dogs and popcorn, one of the teens said, wow, this is a really old couch. This thing's got to be 20 years old. Teens, you know, have no filter many times. I thought, I wonder how he knew that. We tried to modernize that couch. It was really over 30 years old. We took the fringe off the bottom of it, after all, when we were given that by my in-laws. Hospitality doesn't always need to be opulent. Her hospitality was sincere and kind. As I look at this woman and see a servant's spirit being developed, She's not only a woman of hospitality, she's a woman of discernment. In verse 9, and she said to her husband, behold, now I perceive that this is a holy man of God which passes by us continually. 
There are those who seek to serve indiscriminately. They find themselves making alliances and making decisions and even offering their energy in ways that may not please the Lord. After all, the Bible reminds us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that in the end times, one of the marks of the end times is that there will be vulnerability among many who will allow men to creep into houses and lead captive. 2 Timothy 3 says, silly women who are laden with lust. This woman is not one who's simply being led by emotion. This woman has a discerning spirit with regard to her alliances and her partnerships. Oh, that there were many more like her. I was reading recently of the top 10 most wealthy ministers, and we're using that word lightly, in America today. Kenneth Copeland, his wealth now stands as a televangelist at $750 million. You have to ask the question, how many discerning servants or ill-discerning servants have been sending money that particular person's way? I want you to notice that this woman's service was marked by sacrifice. Let us make a little chamber, she says in verse 10. I pray thee in the wall. Now, the word chamber that's being used here is actually a word that defines a room that's being built on the roof of the flat-roofed houses in the Middle East. It was not uncommon to add a veranda or even to wall in that veranda and offer a place for others to stay. And so she says, let us make a little chamber. You notice that? I pray thee on the wall and let us set him there a bed and a table and a stool and a candlestick and shall be when he cometh to us that he'll turn in hither. She's encouraging her husband to be willing to make a sacrifice, not an opulent sacrifice, just a little chamber to minister to this man of God. For after all, one of the chief characteristics of this woman of Shunem, she was a servant with a contented heart. Notice her contentment beginning in verse 11. It fell on a day that Elisha, he came hither. He turned into the chamber and lay there. He said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. And when he called her, she stood before him. He said to her, and he said unto him, Elisha speaking to Gehazi, say now unto her, behold, thou hast been careful for us. With all this care, what's to be done for thee? Wouldest thou be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the host? And I love how this woman of Shunem answers. What do you want, he says. What can we do in return for the favors you've offered to us? And the answer comes at the end of verse 13. I dwell among my own people. In other words, she's simply saying by way of testimony, I'm really content where I'm at. I don't really have any need of anything. God has so blessed me in this place. I'm so thankful in ministry to have met so many dear Shunammite women who have a similar spirit. Discerning, yes. Hospitable, yes. Willing to sacrifice with a spirit of contentment along the way. Now, as the woman of Shunem faithfully served, God has given to us a promise. The promise of God found in Hebrews chapter 11 is that it's impossible for us to outgive the Lord. God has a willingness to give to all of his servants. And I discover in this passage something precious is about to happen. Verse 14 tells us her husband is old. He said unto her, what is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, verily she hath no child. Now the desire to have a child within the nation of Israel was everywhere. 
Every woman who knew the promises of God would be born into Israel desiring to be the mother of the Messiah. This woman, it appears, has given up hope to that end. After all, her husband is old. And so when she is called and she stands in the door, and Elisha says, about this season, according to the time of life, thou should embrace a son. And she said, nay, my Lord, thou man of God, don't lie to me. Her hope has died that she'd have the blessing of a child. Yet God, as we discover in this passage, gives to her in the 17th verse that miracle child. For with God, nothing is impossible. This dear woman demonstrates a servant's spirit. But more than that, as we continue in this text this evening, this woman who was great in service was also great in submission. What is it that makes her great? She was a woman of service, but she was a woman of submission. The Shunammite woman was a submissive wife. Now, there are many messages that have been brought from 2 Kings chapter 4, accusing the husband of the Shunammite woman of being somewhat, somewhat inactive when it comes to spiritual leadership in the home. And I don't see this passage that way. No, instead, I see a wonderful, balanced teamwork in this home where a spiritually mindful wife is bringing recommendations to her husband, and always along the way, he is moving forward with those recommendations because, after all, Proverbs chapter 31 says, she does him good all the days of her life. She seeks counsel. He commits to that direction that she has seen aforetime, and they together are working as a team. But back to the story. So we enter into this story this evening, a precious son of promise, grows up, goes to work in the field with his father. While in that field, he grabs his head, saying, my head, my head, in verse 19, likely having a heat stroke. The elderly father says to a servant in the field, take the little boy and bring him back to his mother. The mother takes that son, who's now lethargic, places that boy on her knees, and there on her knees, the 20th verse says, this son of promise, this one that she never asked for, this one that's brought her such blessing, he dies. Now we're about to learn something wonderful about this great woman, discover something as to why the Spirit of God would identify her singularly in the Word of God as the only woman ever called great. Here's a life trauma that she's experiencing, a life trauma that can be like no other. In fact, when you investigate the impact of life traumas, always at the top of the list is the life trauma of the loss of a loved one, and always at the top of that list, even beyond the loss of a spouse, is often listed the loss of a child. We often realize in our pilgrim journey, in our life of faith, that life's greatest blessings can also turn out to be some of life's greatest burdens. But the things in life that can bring us the greatest joy can also almost immediately bring us the greatest sorrow. It was Longfellow who said, there's no flock, however watched and tended, but one dead lamb is there. There's no fireside, howsoever defended, but has one vacant chair. Through the unexpected tragedy that befalls this great woman of Shunem, we're about to discover what it means to submit to God. We see in this passage what real biblical submission, spirit-led submission is, and we see in this passage what real biblical spirit-led submission 
is not. So let's discover what submission to God really is. Suffering the loss of her beloved son, this woman of Shunem gives a testimony. Did you see it? You find it in verse 23. She's talking to her husband about the need for her to travel to find the prophet of God. He said, verse 23, wherefore wilt thou go to him today? It's neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And she says, it shall be well. Shalom, the Hebrew greeting that has such meaning. It shall be well, but she speaks of that wellness prophetically in the future. As she is approached by Gehazi under the instruction of Elisha, Gehazi comes to her in verse 26 and asks, is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? And note how she answers. Now she speaks in the present. Shalom. It is well. There's much for us to learn here as we unpack this passage. We have to do it with open hearts. As we look in this passage this evening, we discover what submission to God really looks like. Let's start by discovering this, that submission to God requires acknowledging God in every situation. There are some who go through difficult situations and try to somehow reason God out of it, as if the difficulty in which I'm in right now must have originated from the devil. Now, it's true that there would be no sin in the world had it not been for the fall of the devil and the fall of our father Adam. But we can never go through a challenge biblically and wisely without allowing the knowledge that God is somehow involved and God, God is always aware. Job, the father of ten children, lost ten children in a day. And in Job chapter 1 and verse 21, Job responds so famously and so faithfully. God gave, the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't make the mistake of somehow believing that God is not in any way involved with the trials that I go through. God is always involved. If you want to put yourself in a place where there's no hope, enter somehow into a place where you're reasoning that God is not there. If God is not there in our challenges, there's no hope in the time of our challenge. But Pastor Phelps, if God is there and I'm going through this difficulty, how can I say that God is good? We say that God is good because we know God, and God will reveal himself in the challenge, but never leave him out of the challenge that we face. For all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Apart from the sovereignty of God in our challenges, listen, apart from the sovereignty of God in our challenges, our challenges will make us hopeless. But enter God into the challenge, and there's hope, even in despair. So how do I submit to God? I submit by first acknowledging that God is in every situation. Submission to God not only requires acknowledging God in my situation, but it, it requires affirming that God knows best. Now, that's another step altogether. I can take the step of saying, I know God is here, and I know God is aware, but it's very difficult to affirm that God knows best. But that's exactly what Job did when in Job chapter 23 and verse 10, Job said, he knows the way that I take. When I'm tried, I shall come forth as gold. Are we willing to affirm that God knows best? 
Even Eli, the unfaithful high priest, in hearing of the demise of his family, would respond in 2 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 18, it is of the Lord. How was it that he responded? He was saying, I affirm that God is involved in this, and I'm affirming that his way is best. I'm not arguing. I'm affirming that his way is best. Often when we find ourselves in the depths of a great challenge, our heart wants to cry out, I don't deserve this. Folks, I don't mean to be unkind. I just simply mean to be biblically wise. I deserve hell. We all deserve hell. And it's a satanic lie for us to somehow think that the challenge that we're going through is a challenge that's undeserved. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. And when I go through challenges, I have to recognize that when I say, I'm undeserving. That's my old pride. Submission to God requires acknowledging God in every situation, affirming that God knows best in every situation. And submission to God requires accepting the situation. Boy, that's hard. How was this woman able to say, it will be well? How should he, could she give the testimony to Gehazi, it is well? How did she have the confidence to say to her husband as she looked into the future, it will be well? And how did she have the confidence to say to Gehazi when she's asked specifically about her son, it's well? (laughs) She was accepting the situation. David found himself on the run. Absalom was chasing him. The kingdom was being torn apart. And in 2 Samuel 15 and verse 26, David says, behold, here I am. Let him, speaking of God and even Absalom, do to me as it it seemeth good unto him. When Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, lay dead at the entrance into the tabernacle because they had offered strange fire to the Lord, after Aaron sees his sons dead in the tabernacle, the Bible tells us in Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 1 through 3 that Aaron stood mute. He didn't argue. He was accepting the situation as from God. And more, submission to God requires adhering through the situation. Adhering through the situation. As we look at this passage, we find this Shunammite woman holding on to Elijah, or Elisha rather, and saying to Elisha, I'm not going to let you go. She sounds like Jacob, doesn't she? I'm not going to let you go. She's holding on to that one who in her life represented the blessings of God, the intercessor to God. She was holding on to one who represented God in her life. Folks, when we go to the Lord Jesus Christ, our greater high priest, we hold on to the challenges and don't turn aside. Adhering in every situation, I will not let you go except you bless me. I have a paper that I've carried in my Bible for almost 10 years. It's a testimony of Ann Judson, the wife of the first missionary sent out from America, Adoniram Judson. To Ann and Adoniram Judson, a baby was born, Roger Williams Judson. They were overjoyed. 
In fact, Anne wrote a letter to her parents on the 26th of September back in 1815. On the 11th of September, I was made a happy mother of a little son. I had no physician. She was, after all, in Burma or assistance, whatever, excepting Mr. Judson. Since the birth of our little son, my health has been much better than for the past two years. What a blessing that her little Roger Williams Judson brought to his parents there on the mission field in Burma as they sought to discover the culture and learn the language of the people, a delight in every way. And then came the blow that she writes about to her mother in May of 1816. Mrs. Judson writes, Little did I think when I wrote you last that my next letter would be filled with the melancholy subject upon which I now write. Death, regardless of our lonely situation, has entered into our dwelling and made one of the happiest families wretched. Our little Roger Williams, our only little darling boy, was three days ago laid in a silent grave. Eight months we enjoyed the precious little gift, in which time he so completely entwined himself around his parents' hearts that his existence seemed necessary to their own. But God has taught us by afflictions what we would not learn by mercies, that our hearts are his exclusive property, and whatever rival includes, he will tear away. But what shall I say about the improvement we are to make of this affliction? In other words, how can we apply this so we can grow here in the mission field? We do not feel a disposition to murmur or inquire of our sovereign why he has done this. We wish rather to sit down submissively under the rod and bear the smart till the end for which the affliction was sent shall be accomplished. Our hearts were so bound up in this child that we felt he was our only earthly all, our only source of innocent recreation in this heathen land. But God saw it was necessary to remind us of our error and to strip us of our only little all. Oh, it may, may it not be in vain that he's done this. May we so improve upon it that he will stay his hand and say, it is enough. What does godly submission look like? It looks like this. Acknowledging the reality of the situation I find myself in. Affirming that God knows best in my situation. Accepting the situation as from God and adhering to God even in the midst of the situation. But what doesn't it look like? That's an equally valid question as we look at this woman who's called great, who gave a testimony, it's going to be well, and a further testimony, it is well. Let me point out that submission to God is not stoicism. In verse 27, she grabs Elisha by the feet, and Gehazi came to thrust her away, and the man of God said, let her alone. Her soul is vexed within her. It's not some false stoicism that puts away any emotion and has no reality of the concern of the moment. Submission to God is not disinterest. There are some who somehow are able to check out, move on, fill the void in some other way. That's not what is modeled in this passage. She said, I love it. I love how she talks. Did I desire a son of my Lord? Did I ask for this blessing? Did I not say, don't deceive me? It's okay for us to ask why. We may not always get an answer, and we may not always get the answer we desire. But it's okay to ask why. Pastor, how do you know that? Jesus did. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
Submission to God is not stoicism. It's not disinterest. It's not indifference. She was all in. The mother of the child said, verse 30, as the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And he arose and followed her. God calls the Shunammite woman great. He's grieved by those who fail to submit to him. Now let me enlarge and go off the outline a little bit. There are times that we have a hard time submitting to the plan of God in our lives. How then do we live through that season? Let me make a couple of suggestions. First, consider the pain of our Savior. Consider the pain of our Savior. That's what Hebrews tells us to do in chapter 12 and verse 3. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against yourself. Peter says, we have an example. We follow in his steps. And when you consider the pain of the Savior and know that you have a high priest who knows the feelings of our inflictions, consider his presence. Hebrews 13 says in verse 5, for he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And then consider his perseverance. When he was tried, John 13 and verse 1 says, having loved his own, he loved them unto the end. He drank the cup of the sorrow that was given to him to the dredges. Consider his prayers. Hebrews 4 and verse 15, we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4 says, and he ever lives to make intercession for you. And consider that the one that we love has a purpose in all of our challenges. Romans chapter 8 says in verse 29 that we will one day be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Bunyan spent years in jail, away from his family, away from his blind daughter, watching them fall into poverty and going through great personal challenge. Bunyan wrote this line, believers are like bells. The harder they are hit, the better they sound. Consider the promise of the Savior. He said, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We have the wonderful promises of the Lord to lift us up. I love the poem that Corey Ten Boom wrote when she said, My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I can't choose the colors that he weaves so steadily. Corey Ten Boom had lived through the awfulness of the Holocaust and lost her family members. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget that he sees the upper, and I the underside. Why was the woman of Shunem great? Well, she was a great servant, but I think she's one of the greatest biblical models of what real submission to the challenges and trials that God brings us through can be found. She was great. She was great in her supplication. She wasn't silent during her suffering. She went to the prophet, and she poured out her heart to the prophet. Verse 30, as the mother of this child said, as the Lord liveth, as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. He arose and followed after her. I believe her prayer was filled with faith. Her prayer was filled with faith. How do you see that in this text? 
Well, if you know anything of the customs of her times, you'll understand that when someone died, an immediate burial was in order. Because of the heat of the climate, the custom of the Jews was an immediate burial, even before the morning had been concluded. This woman doesn't do that. Come back with me in this passage and let's see what she does. Look at verse 21. We read in 2 Kings chapter 4 and verse 21, she went up, she laid her son on the bed of the man of God. Now to touch a body in the times of this woman was to be ceremonially defiled in Israel. So follow with me what's just happened. She's taken the body of this little one and she has defiled the prophet's chamber as she lays this little one on the bed. As she lays this little one on the bed, we read, she shut the door upon him. She gave no opportunity for anyone to consider what she was going through. She had another direction where she wanted to bring her burden. She wasn't even sharing at this time her burden with her husband. She was walling that burden off as she entered into the prayer closet, if you will. And then the Bible says, having laid that child there and shut the door, she called unto her husband and said, Send me, I pray thee, one of the young men and one of the asses that I may run to the man of God. He said, Wherefore wilt thou go this day? It's neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And she goes on a 15-mile journey to catch up with the prophet of God. And when she catches up with the prophet of God, she says, It is well. How did she come to that conclusion and why did she take these steps? Well, you recall that Elisha had a mentoring prophet. Elisha studied for 10 years under Elijah. And you may recall that Elijah had a widow to whom he ministered. You can read about it in 1 Kings 17. She was the widow of Zarephath. You remember how the widow of Zarephath had so little, but she said to the prophet of God that she would trust the Lord for their provisions, and God through her provided. And then when her son died, how that Elijah was able to call upon the Lord and that son was raised again. Now the widow of Zarephath didn't even live within the confines of the tribes of Israel. Jesus is going to call her out as an example when he speaks in his time in Luke chapter 4 to the snobbish Pharisees and people of Israel. He says to them that there were many widows in the days of Elijah, but God sent Elijah to a widow of Zion, or Zarephath. No doubt this woman of Shunem had heard about the ministry of Elijah. Can't you see her taking that child upstairs, ceremonially defiling that prophet's chamber, shutting the door and telling no one of her burden, mounting that animal that's going to take her on that 15-mile journey, and all the way crying out, Lord, you raised another child, now raise mine. Lord, you raised another child, now raise mine. Now, Lord, you raised another child. I didn't ask for this child, but you gave this child to This is a prayer of faith. How do you know? When she gets to Gehazi, and Gehazi says, is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? She says, now it is well. She's come into contact with that place where she know, knows that prayer can be powerful, and she's ever so persistent in her prayer like Jacob, she wrestled in prayer until the answer came. She was asking in faith, nothing wavering. 
And one final consideration that causes us to say this, this widow, or this woman rather, of Shunem was a great woman. Her satisfaction was great. Her crisis was severe, but she stands as a testimony of the goodness of God to his servants as God miraculously provides for her needs. There is no, I love how Ryrie says it, there's, there was not a cardiopulmonary resuscitation, but a spectacular miracle that God provided. And if you take your Bibles and go over to 2 Kings chapter 8, you'll find that the story of the great woman of Shunem is not yet done. In 2 Kings chapter 8, we read of her again. Then spake Elisha unto the woman, whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go thou and thine household, and sojourn wheresoever thou canst sojourn. Elisha is talking to the woman whose son had been restored, the great woman of Shunem. Arise, go thou and thine household, and sojourn wheresoever thou canst sojourn. For the Lord hath called for a famine, it shall also come upon the land seven years. It seems by this point that her husband, who was aged, has died. Now watch what happens. A woman arose and did after the saying of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. came to pass at the seven years' end that the woman returned out of the land of the Philistines. She went forth to cry unto the king for her house and for her land. The king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, I pray thee, all the great things that Elisha hath done. It came to pass as he was telling the king had restored a dead body to life, that behold, the woman whose son had been restored to life cried to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman. This is her son whom Elisha restored to life. The king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed unto her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers, all the fruits of the field, since the day that she left the land, even till now. This woman was a great woman. She experienced the miracles of God in her life. She experienced a God who continually provided for her along the way. Listen, God's servants will face trying times. Those who are called great will go through those trying times as servants of God who submit to God, who cry out in supplication to God and find that in God alone is our satisfaction. May God help all of us to cry out even this evening, Lord, help me to be a great servant. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.